Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Healthcare Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I have Gary Hughes, who is CEO and founder of TechGrow. Gary and I are talking about innovating in clinical trials today, and that is because TechGrow uses machine learning to help get drugs and treatments to market quicker and more transparently by speeding up clinical trials. And the way they do that is using a platform which allows clinicians and principal investigators on clinical trials to kind of see what's going on all around the world with the patients involved in those trials, and we'll explain more about that on the podcast. So, Gary. He's got a really interesting background. Um, his previous company called Firecrest is actually listed on the NASDAQ. And Teco itself is doing very well. So they recently raised $25 million, taking their total up to $41 million from pretty good VCs, the likes of Founders Fund, uh, Bill Morris. And Teco themselves are working with the top 10 pharmaceutical and biotech companies in the world. They've got over 10,000 users across 80 countries. So as you can tell, Gary knows a thing or two about building companies, particularly in this space. So on the podcast, we talk about Gary's background, we talk about TechCrow and the products and how that actually works in practice, and we talk about the space itself. So people listening that might have ideas or companies looking to innovate in clinical trials, Gary shares his expertise in doing that for his career. So as always, if you want to get in touch with us, you want to give us any feedback, you want to suggest a guest, then feel free to get in touch with us. Our email address is info at hs.live. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at hsventure. We're on Instagram at hs.ventures. And if you want to find me, you can get me on LinkedIn, Twitter, all the usual stuff. My name's James Someru, and just search for that. So J-A-M-E-S-S-O-M-A-U-R-O-O. And you can find me across all of those mediums. So guys enjoy the podcast um, and learn everything you can about innovating in clinical trials gary welcome to the hs health tech podcast how are you doing very well james thanks for uh, inviting me uh, it's good to be here awesome where are you speaking to us from today gary today i am uh, speaking to you from our offices in limerick ireland so uh, for anybody who doesn't know where that is it's uh, just midwest of uh, or more towards the west coast. Lovely. What's the weather like down there? Surprisingly good today. Normally Is it? <laughs> rain, but um, today it's uh, it's quite pleasant. Awesome. It's been all over the place for us. But anyway, Gary, so for the benefit of our listeners, I know that we've had a quick call before where you told me a bit about your awesome background and stuff. So yeah, for our listeners, why don't you tell us your story? Sure. Uh, not, not quite so sure about it being awesome, but uh, happy. Oh, it is. Modest. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess my own background, uh, um, I, I studied industrial design um, with great ambitions of following in the footsteps of people like Dieter Rams and famous product designers like that. Um, but somewhere along the line got sidetracked and seduced by technology in the, uh, the mid-90s and um, worked for a couple of uh, 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 e-learning companies initially in Dublin and then got an opportunity to move to the US and uh, work with Microsoft in their Washington offices. Uh, did that for a spell and then came back to Ireland and um, uh, had an encounter with what you might call um, a proper entrepreneur. And um, this was when the, the dot-com bubble was in, was in full flight. Um, but it was uh, kind of a crazy, exciting time and just that sort of can-do attitude and uh, nothing is, is, uh, is impossible type vibe that we had, we had back then. 
um, and just was mesmerized by that whole idea of, of just trying to create, um, you know, create value, create a company, come up with product ideas, uh, and really leverage the internet in a way that, um, uh, you know, could, could get that out there to, to a much larger audience. Um, that particular startup I was involved in didn't succeed, but I think uh, the learnings from it and uh, just the bug of entrepreneurship really kind of bit. And um, following that, um, uh, two co-founders, uh, Nigel Hughes and Yatsik Skripiets and I, we, uh, we set out to, uh, to, uh, to create uh, our first company, which was uh, called Firecrest Chemical. Um, I often use the story, it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, a couple of guys wanting to be in a rock band. Um, it's only when you start that you realize you have to learn to play the, the, the instruments. Um, so we spent a good bit of time, I guess, just trying to figure out what it meant to really run a company. You learn all kinds of things to do with, you know, just the legal aspects of it, taxation, just employee law, but also just getting in front of customers and really pitching your idea and your vision and, and, and really just trying to make an impact in the world uh, with what you do and what you believe in. And um, we made a lot of mistakes. Um, I think a lot of first time founders do, um, but we started to get a, a few things right. And over the course of the next several years, we were lucky enough to meet up with a, um, a number of principal investigators. Um, one of the co-founders has a medical background um, and uh, we got an introduction to a couple of principal investigators and we started to get an understanding for how difficult and complex clinical trials are. And uh, it's surprising that even, you know, 15, 16 years on from when we uh, established Firecrest Clinical, um, that those problems are still very much prevalent today. Um, but uh, really just got an understanding of some of the challenges just to be an investigator in a clinical trial, just from just everything from study startup, um, just the day-to-day -day conduct of the trial, just a lot of the, the sort of the touch points, you know, the bureaucracy, if you like, of, of being involved in a clinical trial, just the, the paper aspect of it. Um, and we started to create, if you like, a training platform really for, for, uh, for physicians and psych coordinators working in clinical trials. Um, it proved to be quite successful. Um, we scaled it up over a number of years. Um, the company was acquired by ICON in 2011, ICON are a global clinical research organization. And we were part of ICON, uh, just typically what happens in, in some of these acquisition type deals is there was a period of time we had to stay on. And uh, we did that for, for two years. Uh, had a great time, great company, great people. Um, but I guess that that sort of, that bug of, of just really wanting to, uh, to, to build and run our own companies that still was very much strong in all three of us. And I guess as well, also just the experience of being in a global CRO and seeing kind of just the, the complexity of clinical trials on a global level. Um, uh, we just seen this huge opportunity there to really rethink um, many aspects of how trials are conducted today. So um, 20, uh, end of 2013, I think, if I remember correctly, we, uh, we left ICON. We uh, um, spent a bit of time just trying to figure out what our next move was going to be. And then um, uh, 2015, we established TechRow. And um, uh, without going into too much detail too early, I guess really TechRow for us was, was almost looking at clinical trials as if you had a blank piece of paper and saying, if you could, if you could design the perfect clinical trial um, and do it in a way that you know, engages as many stakeholders as possible in the process, is as frictionless as, pos as possible for, for anybody participating in the trial, um, but also you know, has that you know, longer term goal of really just making clinical trials you know, more accessible to, to patients around the world. Um, how would you do it? And you know, we talked about this for a long time and uh, um, we just felt 
you know, in order to do it properly and to really uh, make an impact, if you like, we just, we, uh, we wanted to start from the perspective of, you know, something that was simple and easy to adopt, but something that could scale into a much bigger platform that could be used, uh, um, uh, you know, to, to run large scale clinical trials um, over time. Um, so that was kind of the, just the kind of brief history and how we, how we got into TechRo. But um, uh, as I said, started in 2015, um, we've been kind of up and running now for the last four years. Um, it's been a pretty wild journey in some respects. Things have moved exceptionally quickly. Um, and I think for us, it, it probably comes back in some ways to my own product design background. I think probably what's the most important thing for us overall is just the idea of simplification in clinical trials. Um, I think we touched on a little piece of that when we were in our previous company, but I think really understanding some of the challenges that you know, busy research staff um, have on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, just the minutes that they have with patients. It's not hours, it's not you know, endless amounts of time that they can afford to be looking at technology platforms or inter interacting with systems, but just the minutes they have with, with patients and just how vital that interaction is. And if in some way we can make you know, um, a, a digital touch point that makes sense for every physician in a clinical trial, makes sense for every research nurse or coordinator in a clinical trial, um, and do it in a way that's simple, that's attractive, um, that makes their jobs easier, that obviously, you know, hopefully makes uh, the, the clinical trial um, easier to conduct and uh, does so in a way that um, ensures the safety of patients. Um, I think that's, uh, that's something we, uh, we aspire to all the time. I think if we can achieve that, we'd be very proud as, as, as founders of this company. Very cool. I want to take us back then all the way back to one of the first things that you said there, which was that you, that you did industrial design. So I've just spoken to Andrew Barraclough, I've in, in, interviewed him for the, for the podcast actually. So he's head of, uh, sorry, he's VP of design and innovation at GSK. So he was talking to me about what design really means and how design thinking actually means that people that have studied design make excellent founders of companies because what they do is they don't just make things look cool as, as you know, one paradigm of what design is or make things look flashy or, or streamlined or whatever. It's actually just thinking about processes in a completely new way and a, and a completely systematic way and actually thinking of, of how to solve problems through creating systems and that. And he talks about how that is actually what design thinking is. So uh, I guess my question is that grounding in, in industrial design, actually studying industrial design, has that set you up to develop these companies and has that been a major asset in, in how you've set these up and, and thought about them in the early days? Um, I guess in a sub subliminal uh, way, yes, it has. I mean, we have never really thought of, I've never really thought about it that way. I guess it's just probably something that's come naturally to me in the way I think about products and, uh, um, and how we've approached things in the past. It, it is very much, a, a, you know, how do you solve a problem um, for example, you know, like clinical trials or just trying to understand and empathize with the end user and where they are and what's important to them and how you can, um, um, I suppose, you know, yeah, set out to solve some of the problems that they, that they have. Um, I guess, yeah, you know, I never really thought too much about here's a business idea or here's the size of a market. Let's go in there and try and figure something out. It's, it's pretty much been just observing problems or hearing stories or interacting with people where they're conveying to you some of the challenges they have in their everyday life um, and really starting to think about how we can uh, 
how we can do that differently or how we could maybe um, work with them in a way that, that, that would solve some of those problems. Yeah, so let's so let's talk about um, the, the I guess the customer then. So, with Firecrest Clinical, or I guess beyond that, even with TechCro. So, you've gone from studying industrial design to actually then working with, as you say, principal investigators for clinical trials. So, how did that come about? You say you didn't you didn't pick a market and you didn't pick a field, but you've picked a very large market and a very lucrative field um, in pharma with obviously lots of problems to solve and lots of highly paying customers, which is a good market to be involved in so yeah tell me about that tell me how you moved into pharma yeah so i guess it started out in a in a, in a very simple way i mean we were doing general things around uh, technology and looking at certain things in, in just healthcare generally um, and just through a series of introductions happened upon somebody who was involved in running a clinical trial and just shared the first-hand experience of what it was like and uh, i think you know recounting just even just some of the some of the issues even with just attending investigator meetings and just the time it takes and you know um, it's almost like when you are there it's 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 in some respects debt by PowerPoint for two days and then you leave and you're expected to know everything about the trial and and, and uh, conduct it perfectly from that point on um, so it, it was in, in some respects it was just pure luck we just managed to get an introduction and um, it, I guess it's just probably the way I've always thought about things it was just seeing what we were doing and how it could be adapted to that particular um, problem or that particular opportunity. And uh, it started from there. Um, and then we just, um, I guess, maybe on the more entrepreneurial side, we started to then approach different pharmaceutical companies, um, talk to them about what we were doing, you know, probably did, you know, a hundred different prototypes of different ways we, we felt we could, uh, we could address um, some of the issues and make, you know, a more engaging and, and, um, uh, technology-based experience for, 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 for their investigators and research uh, sites. Um, it seemed to, it seemed to uh, resonate with a lot of people we talked about. Um, and we, you know, we started doing our first trial with kind of large, what I would consider, say, a top-tier pharma company, you know, top, top uh, 30 pharma companies, about 2005. We started to do like some large sort of phase two and phase three clinical trials. Um, and then it was just a process of, you know, just seeing how users interact with the product, uh, continue trying to refine it. At the same time, I guess, you know, refining our own internal processes, um, looking at technology that was evolving and just adapting all of these things. Um, but I think overall our approach and, and has been, and, and it's very much true to this day with Techro, it's, We've always thought of technology as, you know, and the way we work, it's, it's, it's very much, it's not what we can add, it's, it's more what we can take away. I think if you talk to any doctor um, or nurse on a clinical trial, or even in healthcare generally, um, the last thing they probably want um, is another technology to be, uh, to be uh, landed on top of them. Um, and I think it's because people don't really think about, you know, how that, that piece of technology um, fits into their everyday into their everyday world. I remember recounting a, a, a story with somebody, um, I think there was an article in the US publication where they're talking about just electronic medical records. And I think some hospital group in the US had spent 100 million on the software, but ended up spending something like 1.5 billion on the implementation. And I think if you were to step back and talk about electronic medical records for lots of reasons that make lots of sense, but if you're a busy physician and you've got like 10, maybe 15 minutes max with a patient, and you've got to spend maybe 10 to 12 minutes of those of that of that session 
on a computer screen, looking at the computer, trying to fill out fields in the electronic medical records. The patient becomes very secondary in that conversation. And anyway, the, 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 long, the long and the short of this particular story was um, that particular organization, what ended up happening was they, they, uh, they, they hired what they called scribes, so somebody who would sit in with the doctor. So while the doctor was talking to the patient, um, you would have what they called a scribe who was filling out electronic medical records uh, beside them. And I think in many ways that's kind of typical of a lot of technologies and, and how they're introduced. They may make sense to somebody centrally who needs to get a global view of something. They may, you know, have the, you know, maybe, maybe they can give you the offer of operational efficiency or it's cleaner to, it's easier to clean the data or whatever the case might be. But just thinking about it from a human perspective, you know, the cost, the interaction cost, if you like, of just interacting with that technology. Um, and we see that all the time, particularly in clinical trials. Um, if you think about it, you know, you're a busy physician, you've got 10, maybe 15 minutes with the patient. Um, are you really going to spend five or six minutes, you know, trying to, one, get onto a computer, log into a website? You probably forgot your username and password, so you have to reset it. Um, get into a system, navigate your number of screens to maybe open a PDF document to try and look up an answer or to log in to, to register, some, register some activity. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of technology um, uh, in healthcare. Um, people aren't really thinking about the interaction cost um, of what it takes to, uh, to use that technology. I think that's kind of where we come from. We, we think about it more, as I said earlier, it's like, it's not what we can add, it's what, what can we take away. Um, and I think for me, if we're going to introduce a new technology like Tecro, it has to remove something else in the process. It has to take away the interaction cost of, of interacting with paper, for example, or interacting with an online portal or some other third party system. Um, it has to save time. It has to feel in some ways almost like it's not a technology. It's, it's, it just feels like something that you would do as frequently and as casually as you might look up the weather or look up a sports score or things like that. I think if you don't get to that point, then in some respects, technology has failed. Um, I think as well, if you think about things like electronic data capture, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, um, if they are working on clinical trials. And again, conceptually, the idea makes perfect sense. It's been around for a long time, 20 plus years at this stage. Um, but if you look at the time it takes when a patient visit happens to when the data finally makes its way into the data capture system, and if you talk to any drug company, they will, they will give you similar, um, similar estimates. It takes about three weeks on average. So patient visit happens today, you know, it's gonna take three weeks for that data to get in, finally get into the data capture system, into the, into the electronic case report form. Um, and that's not because doctors are lazy or don't wanna do it. It's just because it's too hard. It's not, it's not friendly in that user setting where, you know, the patient is present. Um, it just takes up too much time and, uh, um, and so while you get the benefits of having the data in that database format and be able to clean the data later on, the journey to get the data in is very inefficient. Um, so I think for us, that's, that's always been a primary focus. It's, it's really been, you know, I guess as a technology company, you want to think of yourself as being innovative, but really for us, I think what's more important is simplification. It's, um, it's really, how do you make this a technology? It's almost invisible uh, during the course the, the, the conduct of the clinical trial but yet it's something that people use hundreds of times throughout the throughout the, throughout the trial and, and those interactions can be as quick as 15 20 seconds uh, whether that's to get an answer whether it's to get 
you know, to, con to connect with somebody, to contact somebody about an issue. Um, it needs to be that quick, that seamless and that frictionless. Um, otherwise, it's not going to succeed. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's, there's loads of things actually that you've just mentioned that, that I would agree with. And one of them, interesting phrase you used, an interaction cost. There's so many innovations that I think have come in or tried to come into to health, and te health and technology, however you want to define it, whether that's on the ground floor or be that in clinical trials or whatever. I think there's so many different innovations that have come in that have just absorbed far or required far too much of that interaction cost. And that kind of step back that you need to take in efficiency to just get used to a new system or as you say get over the humps of losing losing your password all those different things i think quite a lot of people have become jaded with new innovation and new technology simply because they've seen it all before they've heard of these systems coming in which have been laborious and and haven't really sped anything up for all the reasons that you've just mentioned and i think it is definitely something that that, that needs a huge amount of focus and as you say it's it's often just about simplifying processes rather than bringing in new fancy stuff that does lots of different things with lots of new features i think those are the things that people get jaded with because at the end of the day i don't, I don't think people have really got the energy to be taking all the time really to be taking huge steps backwards in efficiency just to learn a new system to integrate something new and I think, yeah, I completely agree. The first step of any new innovation is to just ensure that there's a net reduction in work and to absolutely make sure that in learning how to use those systems, you don't have to get horrendously inefficient because otherwise you just will not get the adoption and the take up. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think we're, we're singing off the same hymn shit here. Yeah. So on that note then, Gary, talk to me about TechCrow. So on a really basic level, and bear in mind that obviously you come from a, you know, a pharma, uh, biotech, and, and, you know, all that, that side of life sciences in terms of innovation. And I come more from the ground floor clinician, then digital health and modernizing healthcare in that kind of ground floor of health. So we come from slightly adjacent worlds. So tell me about TechCrow and, and tell me, I guess in, in simple terms, what's the, what was the problem that you were going after initially? And then what's the solution? And it seems to me it might be a suite of solutions all around efficiency savings. But yeah, talk to me about that and, and kind of talk me through, I guess, a user journey, be that a clinician doing clinical trials or a, a principal investigator or something along those lines. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned earlier in, in the conversation, uh, I think when we set out to, to create TechRo, we had this idea, you know, how could you design the perfect clinical trial? You know, where would you start? And I think the, the obvious place for me was the protocol. And I think, um, you know, I hear a lot of talk about digital innovation and digital transformation and there's big data platforms and patient centricity and there's apps for this and, and that. But, at the end of the day, you know, the primary interface for a clinical trial is, is, is the protocol. Um, you know, you can have all these great technologies and all these great other ideas, but um, what people are going to interact with the most and what they're going to touch the most often is the, is the protocol. Right now, that happens to be primarily on paper. Um, and also, in some cases, it might be on a PDF, you know, somewhere in a portal um, uh, that you might have spent five, ten minutes trying to figure out how to get onto it. Um, so I think for us, that was kind of the obvious starting point um, and just really wanted to create that sort of digital touch point that would enable us to then start to look at other aspects of the clinical trial. Um, what we really want to do is, is almost create the digital infrastructure for, for clinical trials um, 
um, and that would enable new ways of running clinical trials. So I guess from a, from a starting point, the real, and these are all the learnings we would have had from our, you know, our past sort of 15 years, 12, 15 years uh, in previous companies and working in, in clinical research. Um, a lot of people focus, you know, and it's, it's something I think every tech company at some point falls into this trap. I think a lot of people like the idea of being, you know, disruptive and, you know, technology enables a lot of things and people get excited about it and they try to, to do kind of, in some cases, way too much. But our focus this time was really about adoption. Um, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's aligned very much to the idea of simplification and removing friction and trying to, to solve a lot of those, those, those problems with, with how people interact with technology, in, particularly in the clinical trial setting. Um, but really we wanted something that had immediate and obvious value to every stakeholder. Um, so from a sponsor's perspective, the idea that you're printing all these paper protocols, you're putting them out all over the world, you've no idea when anybody touches that protocol. You have no idea, you know, when the data finally comes into the data capture system uh, through the ECRFs, you know, you've no idea what informed the decisions um, that you see in, in, in the data that, that finally gets captured. Did your investigators or your site staff, were they looking at the protocol or were they not? Did they look at the protocol and choose to do something different? You, you just have no idea what's going on. Um, similarly, similarly, from a site's perspective, um, you know, and I, just an example I just know uh, from, from just a recent conversation I had, um, if you were to look up something like hypertension, so a patient presented and you needed to, uh, to, uh, to deal with hypertension. If you went to a paper protocol, um, there's probably one reference on the page, you know, and I think the protocol I was looking at was like page 60 or something. There was a paragraph on hypertension management or something. If you, if you finally got onto a portal and did a keyword search of the PDF, control F and just went through it, you probably would have got 40 or 50 matches across maybe 20 or 30 pages. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to really get an immediate answer that's really relevant and related to the context that you're in. So, you know, if I wanted to look up, you know, it was emergent hypertension or it was part of a follow-up plan or it was even something that was happening during screening. Um, we just wanted to create something that was so simple um, that literally, you know, across all the available documentation in the trial, particularly the protocol, um, we could pull the answer back um, for the person who's asking the question, present it back within, literally within a second. So, you know, whether a patient presents with a toxicity in an oncology trial, whether you want to, you know, quickly check a lab value, and whether um, a patient was eligible to participate in a trial, just that idea that literally within seconds, we could create this very simple mobile digital platform that allowed you to access everything about the trial and find it in a way that uh, literally took you seconds to do. And that, that, that was the starting point with Tecro. Um, and really it was just about, you know, creating that global network um, of sponsor companies who were putting their, their trials onto Tecro, but also that global network of, of research sites around the world who would be using Tecro on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, when I talk to our team internally here, I, I often use the phrase, you know, we want everybody's first instinct to be Tecro. Um, so whether you're a study team and you want to get an answer to something about the trial, um, you know, something about any of the sites that are working in your trial, your first instinct is Tecro. If you're a busy coordinator and you've got 10 protocols and you're checking inclusion exclusion criteria, again, we want your first instinct to be Tecro. If a patient presents with a, 
grade three adverse event um, and you don't know whether to stop the drug, reduce the dose, you know, pull the patient off the trial, we want your first instinct to be Tecro. Um, and it's, it's, it's been very successful for us over the last couple of years. Um, one of the surprising answers we get from, from, from investigators in particular when we show it to people is, I can't believe no one's thought of this before. And, um, so I was, so I was just about to say that. So as a, as a ground floor clinician that has obviously prescribed my fair share of drugs that I know have been through trials, my assumption would have been that when, you know, we hear about the different phases of clinical trials and, you know, how drugs come to market and things. And we get that as a clinician and we understand it in principle. And I, yeah, I, I would have assumed that within the last 10, 15 years, a platform would have developed so that if somebody was doing a trial, that trial would be registered on a platform where everybody included in the trial, as you say, all of the stakeholders, whether they're doing a trial, whether they, they, you know, part of it in Southampton or they're part of it in Glasgow and they have patients with issues or whatever it is with, with problems, or they just want to find out more. I would just have assumed that there was a, a, a consolidating platform that did all that. So I suppose the, you know, the best ideas are simple at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, I think as well, just on that, I mean, it, I also think the, the simplest ideas are sometimes the hardest to execute. Um, yeah. Um, because it's easy to add 20 buttons on a screen. It's easy to have layers and layers of, of information. Um, and you put all that sort of work on the end user to figure it out. It's really hard to strip things back so they are just, they are so simple. Um, yeah, we've had that on the podcast before. I think I think it was Jonathan from Perfect Ward said that you know simplicity at the front end requires a heck of a lot of complexity at the back. Yeah, and uh, like and again, you know, when we started out, we, we we didn't really have an idea how complex it was going to become on the back end. Um, but it, but it, it's it, it's so true. I mean, it's it's the, the sophistication, if you like, is what people don't see. Um, everything from who gets access to how documents are version controlled to ensure everybody's on the right protocol, the right version protocol at the right time. Um, just ensuring that people get access to the right information, how all of that stuff is, is managed and tracked. Um, um, and there is, there is real complexity there. Um, but I think for me, the real success of TechRo has been, there's been a couple of small things and, and you know, we don't talk about numbers too much or anything like that here. I mean, you know, things like revenue and stuff like that are obviously very important to, to all companies. Um, but for me, probably the, the real success is, you know, right now, like literally every, every couple of minutes, somebody somewhere in the world is on TechRo asking um, a question about a particular clinical trial. Mm. And, you know, we see it when I come into work in the morning. You can see Australia and Japan and countries like that coming on first. And as the sun sort of moves across, um, you start to see, you know, uh, other Asian countries and then into Europe and then across into the US. Um, and it is really quite remarkable to see people around the world asking these questions. What's also been hugely, um, uh, I guess, a huge satisfaction point for us has been um, some drug companies have started coming to us, sponsor companies have come to us and um, have asked us to, to, to work with them on clinical trials, which isn't really heard of. Normally vendors, you know, go to the big companies and, you know, please buy our, buy our goods and services. We'd love to work with you. Um, and that has come about directly from investigators who have been on the trial that's used Tecro 
And then they've been approached to work on another clinic trial and have requested checkroom because it saved them time. It's made their lives easier. Mm. Um, it's made everything so much more immediate to them and, uh, and, uh, and more accessible. So they're kind of the things that really, I think, uh, resonate with the team here. And, and that's, that's the sign that we're really making an impact. It's when you get buy-in from the end user. When the, you start to hear those type of stories start to happen, you start to see those type of network effects start to happen. Yeah, exactly. That's when you know um, it is working on, on a level. Um, you know, I've, you know, we can talk about numbers and stuff like that and, and things like that, uh, you know. Um, but, you know, I think for somebody who joins tech or was working in the company, you know, numbers don't really mean anything. What, what's really impactful is when you can see, you know, somebody in you know, Florida, who's, you know, looking up a toxicity management plan and you know, you're having an impact on, on the conduct of that clinical trial or somebody's looking up inclusion criteria, you know, in Tokyo. Um, and that's a sign that, you know, you know, we've got buy-in from physicians. Um, we've got buy-in from, from the really important stakeholders who are on the front line, who are, um, uh, you know, conducting these clinical trials, who are, you know, that, that first line to, to patients. And uh, that's really rewarding to, to see them. Yeah, and I think it's because it's very clear that you solve a problem for everybody involved. I've, I've got friends that were at medical school with me, actually, that, that moved into clinical trials. And I can, I can empathize with, with his position when, you know, he needs to look things up and uh, needs, needs the answers to questions very quickly and obviously needs that information very quickly. And so I can, I can really, I can see now exactly where this fits into certainly a clinician and how you could, how there is a value proposition for a clinician very, very clearly. But it strikes me that what you talked about at the start with speaking to all of your customers, users, end users, you know, you've really mapped out all the different value propositions to create a platform that, to be quite frank, isn't actually that disruptive. It's more just, and it, it's almost what, what should have been happening anyway. It's more just giving people the opportunity to get the information that they want, which doesn't strike me as particularly disruptive. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, um, and that's, that's exactly what we set out to do. It's, it's, as I said, it's, it's not about being disruptive. It's really about focusing on adoption. I think when you get, you know, when you get buy-in from the end user, particularly, you know, um, uh, healthcare professionals around the world, I think it's over time, you can start to introduce other products and services on the back of that. Um, as long as you stay true to those principles of simplicity, um, and really removing friction and, and trying to, to take away from the burden, not, not add to the burden. Um, um, but I think for us very much, it was very deliberate. Um, it was really a focus on adoption, not disruption. And I've, I've used that phrase a lot of times. Mm. Currently here at Decro, also talking to customers and even to, to our investors. I mean, um, I think that's, that's, that's the critical thing. I remember, I recall a very early conversation we had with um, Founders Fund and, and the team there. And that was one of their, their, their questions too. Is it was like, we know, we know you guys are experienced, you've got a good team, you've got a great track record and um, I get the product, it makes sense. Um, it's like, but can you really get doctors to adopt this? And I think that was a fair question because I think there's been so much talk about technology and healthcare probably for ever in a day, you know. Um, nothing has really made the breakthrough um, or has really had that sort of impact and getting doctors to adopt technology is, is very difficult. And, and I think that we've managed to, to do that. Um, I think really just, you know, kind of vindicates the strategy we employed and, and what we did. And um, 
I also recall a very early story with um, one of the first drug companies we worked with. And when you're um, when you go, you're starting to go through the process of, of they're, they're selecting you as a vendor, and you've got to go through through different stages with their IT teams and things like that. And we were doing a, a demonstration of, of the product, and um, I think one of the IT team, the, the tech guys on the call from the drug company side, said, "Is that all it does?" And very quickly, before we could say anything one of the clinical team in that company said, that's why we love it so much. <laughs> it wasn't trying to be 101 things. It was just very focused on solving an initial problem. Um, I think for me, longer term, when I think about tech, it's not just necessarily a way to get answers to information from documents. I think what we've really established is this real-time digital connection to all the stakeholders in the clinical trial. And I think that, that opens up huge opportunities into the future around areas about how you know, collaboration can happen uh, more seamlessly and, uh, and faster between uh, sponsor companies and, and, and the research sites around the world. Um, it can open up other ways that we can look at communications that happen in clinical trials, um, even how we look at things like how, how performance is managed on a clinical trial. Um, and even down the line, I can see opportunities for how you can start to rethink data capture and, and, and novel ways of doing data capture. But I think it's, it's really been about, I think our, our focus always will be, it's that idea of simplification, focus on adoption. And then it's, it is about bringing all the stakeholders with you. Um, you know, if it only works for the pharma company, you'll leave the sites behind. If it only works for the sites and there's nothing in it for pharma, they're not going to see the value in it either. So, it's, it's that idea of trying to bring everybody with you, but, but really staying close and, and, and true to that idea of simplification and adoption. Yeah, and you, and you really have to think that way because you are the platform and you absolutely need everybody on board, not only the fact that they are willing to go on it, but you want, you want them loving it and you want, you want it to be sticky. You want everybody having their problems solved. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely about going to all those different stakeholders. I just want to move us on slightly just to talk about something that you mentioned then about Founders Fund. Obviously, you've had some pretty significant investment come into the company. You've grown it what seeming seems quite quick to you've raised over I think 43 million. Correct, yes. To date, I think if I've got my research right. Google Ventures are mentioned, Founders Fund are mentioned. Do you want to just talk to me about the the growth of the company, who you've raised from, why you raised from them? And yeah, just a bit about that side of the journey. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, um, again, in some respects, many things, maybe someday if I step back and look back at it, I could probably give you a, a more detailed answer as to how we, we arrived where we did. But um, <laughs> Uh, in some cases, it was just, I guess we wanted to, to look really to sort of that part of the world to, to if we were going to raise money, we didn't really raise much money in our previous company. Uh, we kind of bootstrapped a lot of it. But um, I think um, this time it was, it was really, we were, you know, we, we had a real conscious effort. We wanted to really do something big this time. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe other people might have thought we would have done another startup like our previous company, got to a certain point, flipped the company again, but that really wasn't what we wanted to do. I think, you know, it was really about, could we solve really big problems this time, really uh, do something that, that was much bigger than we ever imagined in, in, in our previous company. And um, we're lucky enough to get introduced to, to people like Scott Nolan and Founders Fund and, um, Again, just the benefit of their experience. I think they just see so many companies. They, they, uh, they, they get to 
they get exposure to, to, to an awful lot of stuff. And I guess it's, it's interesting when they do take, you know, they, they show an interest in your company and what you're doing. And, um, and in some respects, you know, it happened relatively quickly. Uh, I think we had, a, we had a couple of meetings over a relatively short period of time. Um, I think they were able to make a decision very quickly. And this was really before we had any customers were, we were, we were still in kind of building the product mode, but, um, I think, you know, um, and maybe you'd have to talk to, to, to the founders one guys at some point to get, to get a real answer, but, um, I guess they just see what we're doing and, uh, um, it, it resonated with them. And, um, I think a lot of venture capital companies have been looking at, um, clinical trials for a long time. I think people are still somewhat baffled, if you like, about why it is so conservative and in some cases why it is, you know, it is, it is so far behind in the adoption of technology or the impact of technology on, 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 on these industries. And I guess we're just able to show, you know, a real deep understanding of, of the industry itself, but also what was required to work in it. And, and just our ideas again around just how to, uh, how to uh, work our way in, how to uh, come up with a product and a strategy that would make sense and that could scale and could grow over time. So um, that was really the introduction of Founders Fund. Um, and again, just, you know, I think it's the benefit of being, you know, the network that, that exists out there. We got to meet some, some really impressive people. They introduced us to some other people. Um, and then we we're really fortunate. We got to meet um, a guy like Bill Morris, who's a, really exceptional guy, um, did incredible stuff during his time at Google Ventures. And he had uh, just started his own fund section 32 at the time and met Bill, um, very informal conversation, just a really nice person, um, um, kind of told him our story, what we were doing. And uh, Bill came on board as an investor in, uh, in our B round. Um, we also had met a, uh, an East Coast fund based in the DC area called Sands Capital. Um, and again, had co-invested, uh, I think, with uh, with Founders Fund on some projects, and I think that was where the connection was established initially. Um, um, and uh, again, just very aligned. All, all, all the funds we've brought on, all, all the investors we have, very similar in, in their approach. They're all very founder-friendly, all very supportive. Um, none of them have a particularly short timeline where they're looking for you to, to get out in two or three years' time or, or do X, Y, and Z. Um, I think they, they all understand the, the complexity about building a, a large company um, and scaling it over time, particularly in industry like, like clinical research. Um, and then more recently, we did a, a Series C round uh, with a fund um, uh, called Northbound, who led the fund, and um, a really impressive guy there called Michael Rubin, who's, who's, uh, who heads up that fund. And Michael had been um, an investigator himself on a number of clinical trials, understood the problems firsthand and, um, and came in and backed us as well. So it's, it's been one of those stories, I guess, where, you know, it has been about, you know, being lucky enough to get introduced to some people, having a compelling story and be able to show what we were about, show that we were really authentic in what we were trying to do, that we believed in, 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 in what we were setting out to do. And really that change was possible in this industry, but it needed a very pragmatic approach. And um, I think as we've onboarded customers, uh, we've been able to bring in more investors over time. And I think um, that's really what's, what's brought us to this point today. Yeah, I, th I think you, you are being quite modest there as well. I mean, you do make your own fortune. You do make your own luck. And I think you guys being such an experienced team with, as you say, a really deep understanding 
of the problem that needed solving. I think it, it must have been a, a very compelling pitch, to be perfectly honest, given given what I know about you and what I've read and what I've heard about your background and, and the way you've started it, particularly even when you had the idea, you know, for something that just seems so simple and, and what's should have happened quite a long time ago from what I can tell. But I get what's interesting me there as well is is the market that you mentioned that that clinical trials is such a big market does have big pharma companies involved, which obviously means there's a lot of money and it's an area that could do with quite a lot of innovation. And I hear we hear it quite a lot, and a lot of events that I go to, there's there's always people talking about innovating clinical trials, and there's a lot of very very small startups that are trying to innovate in clinical trials. There's a lot of talk, or there was at least a couple of years ago, about how AI machine learning is going to go in and change clinical trials, and lots of promise. And it seems to it seems to me that you're very well placed as the platform in the middle to to comment on what you think is going on at the moment. What what is hot air? What is potentially high on the hype curve and will be dropping quite soon? So yeah, talking about the area of clinical trials and innovation in general, what's going on? What's good? And yeah, any buzzwords that we should try and avoid? Yeah, I can, I can, I can do my best. I don't know if I can give you the, the definitive uh, sort of analysis on what's going on from a technology perspective, but there's no doubt there's a lot of things going on. I think it, it's, it's, uh, and you see different trends happen over time, and, and there's certain buzzwords that that kind of come to the fore every now and again. So I think blockchains come up a couple of times as well in the past couple of years. I've heard, um, yeah, yeah lo- lots of buzzwords like that. Yeah, so a number of years ago, it was all about big data. Then, then there were things like risk-based monitoring. Um, now all the talk is about patient centricity and virtual clinical trials and different things like that. Um, and it's it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, look, I I think given the nature of clinical research and you know just how important it is in terms of just bringing new medicines to market. You know, you have to applaud everybody who tries to come and, and do something positive. Um, uh, you know, I, for, for us anyway, I think you can't really ignore the physician. I think to us, the physicians are always the gateway to the patients. And, um, you know, I can see things like virtual trials being attractive from a cost-saving perspective or a way of trying to connect with patients earlier or try to recruit patients faster. Um, but very much, if you think about it, the, the physician is the trusted advisor, if you like, to, to, to patients. And um, we always kind of started with the point that, you know, how do you, how do you attract more physicians into clinical research? Like one of the big problems is there, there aren't enough patients in clinical trials. You know, there's a backlog of ideas and drugs and all kinds of stuff waiting to go into clinical trials. But um, it's very hard to find the patients. Um, but equally so, it's, there's just not huge numbers of physicians globally participating in clinical trials. I've heard different estimates, some as low as 3% globally would participate in a clinical trial. And, and then you hear all kinds of startling things like, um, you know, something like a significant percentage, I may be wrong on this, but I've heard things like up to 50% of physicians who do a clinical trial will never participate in a second clinical trial. Um, and even within a clinical trial, there's huge inefficiencies, like about 30% of sites will do, who are, who are you know, set up on a clinical trial will do the vast majority of recruitment and the vast majority of, of, of the work. Um, and then you've got this backdrop of, you know, about five, six years ago, you know, the cost of drug development was about a billion dollars to bring a drug to market. Now it's, you know, it's two billion plus. 
Um, and all of these things, I think you can understand why people get attracted by the idea of machine learning and virtual models and, and, and all these type of things um, and patient centricity type stuff or patient applications. Um, but I think for us very much, it's still, it's still, it's still all about the physicians. I think um, they are the gateway to the patients. And, and some of the problems I see with, with a lot of the patient centric stuff that's going on is really what you're doing is you're, you're putting tech support, if you like, onto the, onto the study, onto the, the research sites. Um, so the doctors and nurses are now becoming almost like tech support for the patients. Um, so you might have a great application like, and the idea again of something like e-consent makes absolute sense um, from a way of just, you know, recording, uh, documenting that consent has happened and stuff like that. Um, but if you think about that idea of the interaction cost, you now have a physician who's either got to handle an iPad or get a patient set up on, on, um, on, a, on a computer somewhere so they can go through this electronic consent form, sign the document. The idea conceptually makes sense, but the execution is, is, hasn't really been thought, thought through. And um, um, I've no doubt there's lots of applications of machine learning that can come into clinical trials, but um, I think our focus has always been, you know, one, how do we attract more physicians? If you bring more physici physicians into clinical research, you will, by extension, bring more patients into it. The way to bring phys physicians in is to simplify clinical trial conduct, remove the friction, make it as easy to conduct a clinical trial as it is to, um, to conduct a normal sort of uh, consultation with a patient. Um, and technology should, in most cases, you know, almost be invisible. Um, it shouldn't be obtrusive. It shouldn't be uh, getting between the phys physician and the patient. And that's really what we set out to do. Um, um, I don't know if I've given you any great insights into, into your question, <laughs> what technologies to look out for, but I know for me, like, I think, you know, whether you want to run a virtual clinical trial, whether you want to run a hybrid clinical trial where there's less visits and patients, you know, go to the, to the hospital less frequently, um, we shouldn't have lots of different systems to do this. We should just have one platform that connects all stakeholders that enables these different approaches to happen. Um, I think having multiple systems that are kind of only do one thing or only enable one way of working, I think you're just creating more noise and more clutter because physicians are never going to work on just one clinical trial for one drug company. I mean, if it's successful, um, you, you, you know, and we see it, you know, a lot of the research sites we work with around the world, they're working with multiple different drug companies um, and across multiple different clinical trials. So they don't want different sets of technology and different sets of approaches for every, um, for every study. And I think that comes back to the idea of giving them something simple that's easy to adopt and something that they will want to have in every clinical trial. Mm. So Gary, for the entrepreneurs listening that might be eyeing up clinical trials as a place that they want to innovate in or, or you know, bring a new product into or at least or even potentially go into to find a problem to solve, knowing it is quite a good market to get into. I mean, what would your advice be for entrepreneurs looking to break into the clinical trial space? That's a good question. I, I, I think the first thing you've got to you've got to be aware of that it's it's um, it is a conservative industry in some respects. Um, it does require a lot of change management um, within pharma to adopt a new technology, um, as well as the sort of the knock-on effect of trying to get um, you know uh, investigators and, and uh, coordinators around the world to adopt it. But um, uh, I think it's. Like it, it's just it's just understanding it's 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 not a necessarily a quick sales cycle. It's going to take time. Um, 
you have to have a lot of things in place um, just to satisfy the regulations, everything from 21 CFR part 11 to things like HIPAA, if you're involving the patient and stuff like that. You need to have really robust and secure IT systems and platforms. You need to have really good quality management in place. Um, um, and these are all just prerequisites before, you know, pharma are really going to be able to work with you and, and do a clinical trial. So I think a lot of people dive in, they've got an idea, they've got an interesting technology, but they don't necessarily know what's required to work with pharma. And, mm. um, and that's, that's something I would say to anybody who's interested in looking into this space is that the sales cycles are not short. It, it can take some time, particularly if you're new to the sector, you're trying to navigate your way in. Um, and you, need, you do need to spend a lot of time thinking about just that sort of the, your, the IT, the quality and the regulatory aspects of what you're doing. Um, I just think you've ticked all those boxes. And you'll probably need some funding for some runway. So from a, from a guy that's raised $43 million for his, his latest company, what's your number one tip for fundraising? Again, it's, it's, it's I mean, there's no hard and fast rule. Um, it, it really depends on, you know, how successful you are with, with, with customer adoption and, you know, getting in is, is, is not trivial. It can be difficult to get into pharma. I mean, I'm sure every pharma company has been in on data with tech companies who are approaching them all the time with great ideas. Um, and there's a lot of vendor management on their side that needs to happen in order to bring a new vendor in. So I think for me, I think, first of all, you would have to have a very novel idea. Um, I think that it comes down to how quickly you adopt it. If, if you are successful, I mean, pharma do have big problems to solve and um, uh, they are, you know, blue chip companies. Um, so, you know, you know, I'm not saying that necessarily that they, that they, they pay over the top or anything like that, but it, it but it, it's, it's, you know, about $60 billion a year is spent in clinical trials, for example. So um, that'll give you a, a sense of the scale of, 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 of the spend on an annual basis. Um, so getting in is, is, is the hard part. I think um, really it depends on how fast you want to go and um, where you see yourself um, fitting into that sort of greater scheme of things. I, I think, look, you know, there is no magic number, but I think having probably anywhere from two to four million is probably what's needed to really get up and running and uh, get established, um, put in place all your systems, hire your core team, and really be prepared for that sort of longer sales cycle that's going to happen in this industry. Mm. Okay, I, I think what I'd pull out from from this, as I've pulled out on a couple of other podcasts actually, for people that listen regularly, you really understood your customer and you solved a really clear problem that well, you're going after currently, you know, a very clear problem. And you understand the value proposition to every single stakeholder that surrounds your platform. I think that for me is the most important group of facts really that have led to the success so far. It seems that because you understood the problem so well, you were able to get those funders on board early. It also meant that you were able to get some early traction. And as you say, you, you know, nature's to bootstrap. And I imagine you, you, you got that traction very quickly with, you know, the early spendings of that two to 4 million. So, it strikes me that you've pulled together just a lot of good principles and you know you're an experienced founder that's as you say made made mistakes with the previous company before which has 
all contributed to the success you're having now. And I think you're solving a problem that, that really does need solving. I think there's clearly people all around the world, all around the globe, every, every few seconds, I think you said that, that are feeling some value from what you're doing. So, um, yeah, from my perspective, long mate continuing. Congratulations. Great. Thank you very much. So Gary, the, uh, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, thoroughly enjoyed it. I think I've learned a great deal again, as I say, every week at the end of these podcasts. But yeah, we end by just handing back over to you to close us out. So summarize about yourself, summarize about TechCrow. And if you've got any asks of our audience, then feel free to ask away. Okay. Yeah, I guess just in summary for me, um, I think first and foremost, we, you know, um, we really believe in what we're doing. We're very passionate about it. Um, we really want to have an impact on how clinical trials are conducted. I think that's really um, focused primarily on trying to increase access to clinical trials around the world and just give everybody an opportunity to participate in a clinical trial if, if ever they're in a circumstance where they need uh, access to a new type of treatment. Um, I think you know um, we're uh, we're very early in our journey. I think you know in many respects we uh, we uh, we still feel like it's in our we're we're in, we're in the first days of 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 Techro's journey, if you like. I think we can see a very long um, path ahead of us, and we've got huge ambition for this company where we want to go. Um, what's really important to us, and I think I've mentioned it a number of times, is just really that connection with uh, healthcare professionals and really trying to uh, put ourselves in their shoes. Um, we absolutely love to hear feedback from, from doctors and nurses around the world. Um, if you are involved in running a clinical trial, we would absolutely love to, to show you Tecro in some capacity. Um, what we would also ask you is if you are running a clinical trial, just ask your sponsor for Tecro, I'm sure. Um, we, could, uh, we could enable some way of getting, getting you onto the, the Tecro platform. Um, but, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're really excited about the journey we're on. Um, we absolutely, as I said, would love to, to, to connect with as many research sites around the world as possible. Um, and just have that dialogue and that feedback and hopefully people can help shape our, our products and our platforms into the future with their own individual requirements and, and uh, some of the challenges that they have in their everyday lives. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's it, James. Awesome, awesome. Um, and how can people get in touch with you? I think the simplest way is um, really through uh, through our website. I think that's probably the first uh, uh, first place to go. Um, also on LinkedIn. I mean, uh, we have a fairly active page on, on places like LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, or any of those type of platforms. Um, but yeah, from a research side perspective, a healthcare professional, I think uh, either reach out to us through our website or uh, even you know, message me directly through LinkedIn or some platform like that. And uh, we'd absolutely love to, to hear from you. Perfect, thanks Gary.